This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, Portrait of a Virtuous Woman by Bob Thurber and Parade for Hendrick by Stephanie Nellen. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts. Portrait of a Virtuous Woman, written by Bob Thurber, read by Kelly Shriver. Listening time, 6 minutes, 10 seconds. Portrait of a Virtuous Woman by Bob Thurber Once a week, to startle, to keep the old boy alert, I tell my husband I'm having my hair cut. Above the ears, chop-chop, short as an English schoolboy's. If he seems disinterested, or unusually numb, dulled by my previous threats, I crank up the volume and drill the point home. Oh, I am serious this time, Charles. Dead serious. Then I'll make scissors of my fingers, snipping at the air just inches from his nose. This time I do mean it, no joke. The appointment has already been made. I generally carry on as though nothing on earth can stop me. Then I wait and watch the poor bastard try. Not counting split-end trims, half an inch at most, which I always perform myself, I have not had my hair cut since I was twelve. That year a number of my sixth-grade classmates contracted lice, and my mother— as a dumb and unnecessary precautionary measure, cropped my waist-length hair to my jaw. My hair is naturally thick and unnaturally springy, what some men have called wild and most women call kinky, a term I despise. My mother hated the fight my hair gave her that night. First, she couldn't find a pair of scissors that would cut more than a few strands at a time. So she brought out my father's straight razor. He was long gone, and the razor, which folded up into a bone handle— and reminded me of Jack the Ripper, served no purpose. She plopped a metal mixing bowl on my head and ordered me to hold it still. She sliced a section at a time, working the razor like a saw, while sidestepping her way around the kitchen chair where I sat holding my breath in my tears. I still remember the sound of the razor against my hair. I expected each slice to be painful, and it was. Each tug hurt. I felt I was being punished for something I had had no part in, and the silence of my mother hurt in a way I cannot begin to describe. The result, captured in that year's school picture, resembled, at worst, a mushroom, and at best a biker's safety helmet, set slightly askew. That portrait sat for years on the family TV, but was later lost, along with the bone-handled razor, and so much other memorabilia, in the fire that destroyed my mother's home and took her life but I still have a wallet-sized photo which I bring out to terrorize Charles when he dares play with the idea that short hair might make me look fashionably sexy. He doesn't say this aloud, of course. A stroke suffered just before his fortieth birthday prevents him from forming all but the crudest sounds, but his eyes glisten when he thinks of sex and the strong side of his mouth, the side that still works, opens and closes, stretching gobs of spittle into a thin white web. When I see that web begin to form, I know what Charles is thinking, and I bring out the photo and steady it inches from his nose. Is this what you want, I shout, because this is what I'll look like. Of course I don't need to shout. There's nothing wrong with Charles hearing, which the stroke left intact, and if anything, has sharpened over the years. I'm not a cruel person, but I do enjoy a good shout. The whole point of living in the country is the ability to talk at the top of one's lungs and not hear a reply. I adore the silence that is Charles, the quiet man he's become, but I abhor his stubbornness. 
My hair is a valuable bargaining chip, a part of me that he still holds dear. So I use it to move his mind, to zap a reminder that everything in life can be altered, changed in a matter of seconds, mutated beyond belief, just as he was altered. Charles has problems with anger, always has. But lately he'll shake less, twist his head away, fumble with the wheel grip, and try to move himself forward or back. It's pathetic to watch. When I leave the room, I lock his wheels. It doesn't matter to me either way, Charles. I only see myself in the mirror a few times each day. You'll have to look. You'll have to live with a short-haired woman. Is that what you want? Is it, Charles? No matter what it is I'm trying to persuade him to do, eat, drink, bathe, swallow his medication, he'll consent. No fuss, no tears. No more anguished, deep-throated howls. He becomes like a child, a little boy accepting my good judgment. Thirty-five years ago, when Charles proposed, I made him admit that it was my hair he loved most about me. Layered cuts and rag styles were in vogue then. Most of my friends had waves of pin curls. I toyed with the idea of changing my look, of shortening or thinning my mop. But a young Marine named Charles convinced me that long flowing hair was the mark of a virtuous woman, a superior breed of female, unashamed to stand apart from the crowd. When I argued that long hair made me feel old-fashioned, he said, And what is wrong with that? God and country are old-fashioned, too, but I'm not about to give them up. He was a private, first-class Marine and proud of it. I liked him more than any man or boy I had dated, but I didn't want to marry him. When he proposed, I was flattered, but I didn't love him and I didn't want him, and I wouldn't, not really, for a long time after. So I answered, as I had been instructed to answer all questions, politely, with virtue and grace. I said, no thank you, Charles. I was still a child, and I said it flat, plain as vanilla, just as if I were turning down a sweet or a cigarette, or an invite to a movie I had already seen. At the end of that summer, Charles left for Vietnam, and I enrolled in secretarial school, mainly because I had been told that was what smart and pretty girls do after high school. I immediately landed a part-time job. Within days of Charles' departure, the man I typed letters for tried to kiss me on the mouth, and I chipped his molar with my birthstone ring. The creepy old bastard fired me on the spot. That night I wrote Charles an exceedingly long letter. I didn't mention the job I lost or the tooth I chipped, but I did do a very stupid thing. I swore an oath, a pledge of allegiance to this faraway soldier, a man I hardly knew and whom I honestly expected to perish. I made my bed, as they say, when I penned a vow to always remain as virtuous as I was pretty. To Charles and for him alone. And I've kept that promise. I keep it daily. And no one as yet has dared try and make me stop. The end. Bob Thurber's short stories have appeared in several journals and received numerous awards. Most recently, the 2007 Barry Hanna Fiction Prize and the 2006 Meridian Editor's Prize. His website is www.bobthurber.net. Parade for Hendrick, written and read by Stephanie Nellen. Listening time, 14 minutes, 40 seconds. Parade for Hendrick by Stephanie Nellen. Hendrik van der Feen's friends from the student rowing club haven't been invited to his funeral, but they've come regardless. 
They shift back and forth on the pews, wedge their backpacks between their legs and stare at the caskets. Since that ambulance pulled up at the clubhouse on a post-party morning two days ago, since the doctor lit a cigarette and made them admit that they thought Hendrik asleep in his sleeping bag, although he had, as the doctor flatly stated, choked on his own vomit two hours ago, his friends have been stunned into collective embarrassment and guilt. A group of novice mourners who crowd the church and gape at the casket as if they expected Hendrik to jump out and tell them what to do now. Hendrik's family occupies the front pews, wrapped in black velvet, silk and cashmere. As one clockwork-powered display, they rise, kneel and pray as the ritual dictates. This is not their first funeral, and it shows. Some students try to join the family's tribute by mouthing prayers or making the sign of the cross. Most are honest enough to blush at their charade. Only one of the students looks prepared for grief. Jonas de Boer, chairman of the rowing club, wears one of his many black suits. Since he started to write his thesis, his attire has become conservative. Almost out of his twenties, he waits for his body to catch up with his middle-aged soul. Already his thick black hair recedes from his brow and his skin stretches around his eyes in preparation for wrinkles. Youth is overrated, Jonas said to Hendrik not long after they fell in love with each other. I want to be old, wise, untouchable and grumpy. You are all that already, Hendrik said with his 20-year-old smile. Drink this. He passed Jonas a small glass of homemade liquor. As diligent student of chemistry, he enjoyed applying the finer aspects of his field. Jonas gulped down the liquor and gasped. Brutal stuff. Your best yet. Hendrik grinned. It's for the party. Later in bed, Jonas slid his hand under Hendrik's t-shirt and caressed the warm skin. He traced Hendrik's heartbeat down his chest to his belly button. Outside, a pigeon clumsily landed on the windowsill and stared at them. Hendrik turned around, drew Jonas close and kissed him half on the mouth and half on the cheek. Jonas remembers Hendrik's breath against his neck and the pigeon's unblinking eyes as he rises with the others. To the pipe organ's thundering pomp funèbre, the pallbearers carry the casket down the aisle. The thunderfanes follow, chins raised, proud as if offering a sacrifice. At first, Jonas feels a familiar anger at the van der Feens. Hendrik has been expelled from the family because of his first boyfriend. Jonas remembers the letter from Hendrik's father, the letterhead of Dr. A.M.H. van der Feen, with a stylized scalpel hovering next to the name. He remembers Hendrik shrugging and touching the thick paper as if it had spikes. He remembers composing replies in his mind. But as the van der Feens file past him, Jonas discovers with a lurch of guilt that he also admires their mastery of funeral protocol. He senses a stiff version of Hendrik's grace in his family, an ability to melt into the environment without fading away, and he longs to walk with them and to know the proper ceremony to bid Hendrik goodbye. 
Outside, a hearse and a fleet of black cars are waiting, triangular grey flags flapping on their roofs. The Thunderfanes distribute themselves into the cars. Hendrik will be buried in the new cemetery outside the city, a short drive from the church. As the family prepares to leave without them, the students grow restless. Some unlock their bikes. Others smoke in short puffs and glance from Jonas to the black cars. Like a bad race, Jonas thinks. Everyone in the boat feels for the other's strokes, for a rhythm, but it's gone. Martin, who used to row in Hendrik's boat, walks towards Jonas. What happens now? The others pick up the question and murmur repetitions. What now? Where do they go? You've read the obituary, Jonas says. The burial will be at the cemetery. So, Martin says, we don't even know which route they'll take. What if they take the freeway? Jonas kneels down to unlock his bike. Let's just get ready. I'll ask them. Before he's done with his bike, an ample woman separates from a group of Thunderfanes and sways towards the students, who fall silent as they watch her approach. Like many middle-aged people, the woman singles out Jonas with his suit and quiet face. Hendrik used to say he looked like an insurance officer. Like Kafka. The woman extends her hand to Jonas without acknowledging Martin or anyone else. Ingeborg van der Feen. I'm Hendrik's mother. Jonas takes her hand. My condolences. Before we drive to the cemetery, I want to thank you and your friends for coming. The gesture is appreciated. Jonas nods. We don't want to impose on your time any more than we already have, she says. I'm sure you have lectures to go to or some rowing obligations. She inhales as if she wanted to push Jonas back with her chest. With his rough voice, Martin interrupts. We're here on our bikes. If you don't want to go fast, we can trail along. We'd like to. He was our friend. The other students murmur in agreement. Ingeborg van der Feen glances at them over Jonas's shoulder. Your friend, she says. You were too drunk to notice he was dying. She points at Martin. If Hendrik was still alive, he wouldn't call you his friend. She looks at the others. Or any of you. Martin looks from the pointing finger to her face. It's true. It's kind of a grisly way to die and we know it's partly our fault. And that's why we thought you might appreciate a grisly way to die. Martin takes a step back. He looks at her finger as if it had the power to smite him. Maybe that word was dumb, okay, but it's somehow shocking to have your best friend die the way people died in the 60s. It's so old-fashioned, you can't believe it happened. Ingeborg van der Feen moves the finger towards Martin's chest. Old-fashioned? Not in a romantic way or anything, Martin says. The pallbearers slide the casket into the hearse and shut the doors with a smack. As one, the students startle. Martin and Hendrik's mother freeze, her finger pointing at his chest, his mouth open. The driver of the hearse starts the engine. Ingeborg van der Feen retracts her finger and smiles a gratified feline smile. Goodbye. 
Don't come along. We don't want you. And Hendrik wouldn't have wanted you either. She leaves. The students look at Jonas, who still holds the bike lock in his left hand. Ingeborg van der Feen's last words echo in his mind. Hendrik wouldn't have wanted you either. He wonders whether this is true. Suppose they would hear faint scratches and complaints from inside the coffin and, upon opening it again, discover that Hendrik was hung over but alive. Hendrik would sit up in his burial suit, groan, and upset his burial hairdo by scratching his head. He would loosen his tie through a silk pillow at Martin and say, About time. It's impossible to breathe in this box. Jonas tries to imagine Hendrik raising his chin in the van der Feen fashion, saying, I don't want you here. Go away. He can't. He imagines Hendrik wrapping his arms around his legs and resting his head on his kneecaps in this casket which looks like an ugly boat. He imagines meeting Hendrik's gaze. Gripping the bike lock tighter, he imagines Hendrik's smile. Hendrik, he imagines asking, what do you want us to do? Someone pats Jonas's shoulder, Martin. What are we going to do now? Jonas clicks the lock shut and slides it over the handlebar. Get ready, we'll go along. Narrow streets twist around the church. The students easily keep up with the cars. The cobblestones make the bells on the students' handlebars tinkle. It drizzles. Jonas is cold in his thin suit, but the hypnotic paddling calms him down. His body remembers the mornings before a race. The solemn approach to the starting line, each slow stroke exaggerated to build up the rhythm, the connection with the others. He smells the river, hears the oars dip into the water. On the bike next to him is Martin, shifting his jaw in what Jonas has come to know as deep concentration. Pedestrians stop to stare at the unusual funeral parade. One girl laughs and waves at them, immediately scolded by her girlfriend who points at the hearse. Outside the city centre, the parade picks up speed. Jonas's legs adjust without him noticing. Over his shoulder, he sees his friends hunched over the handlebars, pedaling in the same rhythm. They are focused on the cars ahead of them now, careful not to lose them. The black cars try to shake them by speeding and weaving a pattern between lanes, but Henrik's friends keep up with them, a dangling silver thread of bikes floating through the late morning traffic. Jonas thinks it is a race. He feels the familiar pull and glide forward, shooting down the river. Before them, the traffic light turns red, the students break. The van der Feens almost escape, but Martin just rides on across the intersection, past the honking cars. Come on, he shouts over his shoulder. The others follow, the cars honk louder and Martin continues shouting, Come on, one stroke a meter, you sissies. Hendrik loved every race he rode. He would close his eyes, pull the oar to his chest, slide backwards and forwards again and again until they'd reached the finish line, where he would open his eyes and ask, did we win? They'd won often, but who could forget how, after a humiliating loss against the other club, their boat floating dejected behind the finish line while their competitors chanted, we are the champions, Hendrik grinned and asked his teammates, great race, huh? The others groaned and splashed him with water.
No, we lost, idiot. Cars and bikes reached the intersection with the Emma Viaduct, a busy road leading up to the freeway. Here the route to the cemetery splits. Murners in a hurry take a ride onto the Emma Viaduct, all others follow the scenic detour straight on. They'll take the freeway, Martin pants. I would, if I was them. Hers and black cars put out their turn signals. A ride, of course. See, Martin says, cars thunder past on the freeway below. Great view, Martin says, face slick with sweat. He licks his lips. So, what do we do now? What Hendrik would have done, Jonas says. He and Martin look at each other. We'll lose them on the freeway, Martin says. But it'll be a great race, they want to say together, but their voices become muddled and it sounds like it'll be great anyways. With a deep breath, Jonas turns around and points to the right. Subdued cheers and some incredulous stares answer him. Jonas points right again. The signal jumps to green, the cars shoot forward, engines roaring. Jonas pedals as fast and hard as he can, as if he could drag the others along. Go on, he shouts, waving forward with one hand. To the freeway! The cars pick up speed as they approach the downward curve of the freeway ramp. Deafened by traffic, exhaust filling his lungs, Jonas flies over the fresh asphalt. The wind tears at his hair. Cars zip past on the freeway like bullets. Jonas glues his gaze to the final car in the Fandefane string and spots an old man staring back at him through the rear window. The man's hairless skin stretches over his skull and his deep eye sockets mirror the hollow cheeks. As Jonas shoots forward the freeway, the old man opens his mouth, a gaping toothless hole, and shouts? He laughs. A wild laugh Jonas can almost hear through the traffic noise. One after the other, the hearse and the black cars enter the freeway. Eyes locked with the old man, Jonas follows. Cars break, honk and swerve into the left lane, forced into making room for the students. Jonas and his friends breach the traffic barrier. After a moment, the cars tear loose from the bikes and become black dots on the horizon. Jonas slows down, legs numb, face throbbing, his tie rippling behind him. He turns around to see his friends' faces. Martin pulls up to his side and gives an ecstatic howl. Jonas lets go of the handlebars then and spreads his arms to the wind. He feels like a sail as he coasts down the road, limp cloth made taut and strong for a moment by a storm of love. Stephanie Nellen is a German psychologist turned writer who lives in Pittsburgh and Groningen with her husband. Her short fiction has appeared in Lablet, The Culture of Science and Fiction and Fact, and Verbsap. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.